0: Okay. Are we ready to start? Let me see if I can mute all participants. All righty. Okay, everyone, are we ready? Yeah. Okay, yes. Yes. let's put this on. Speak of you. Yes. right. Okay, excellent. Let's get started. <laughs> Tonight's class is dedicated. How's the sound? Can everybody hear properly? Yes? Okay. Tonight's class is dedicated in celebration of the birth of baby Joel. Amy Leibovitch by her parents, Lily and Emil Leibovich, and her big brother, Leon. Um, Bert, you can't see me? All right, I'll just mute no, all. No, 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 no. A different word. Okay. Hazaka okay. Baruch <sighs> and Mazal Tov. Congratulations to this new baby, Simcha <speaking> Bat All right? Um... I'm. Uh, we're so one. Want- we're so happy to be able to have everybody here and uh, and joining with us. And uh, it's a wonderful thing as well. If you can't see it and you don't feel like you're getting it clearly over here in the Zoom, you should also be able to see it on uh, on Instagram lot li- on live on my on my uh, on my name Rabbi Shlomo Farhi. And as well I'm trying to also have it go live on Facebook, but it's not always as clear on Facebook. So what we're gonna do instead is we're going to have it on Zoom and on Instagram and hopefully between all of these everyone will be able to see and get involved. Okay, so let's get started. <clears throat> Bad just could you give me the code on the on the Bible chat? Everyone's asking for the code. What code? Of the meeting? Oh, 935 639 9214 935 9214 nine, nine, you. Okay All okay. right Okay so we should have everybody here with us now please try everyone make sure that you are muted so everyone can hear So, in this parasha, we deal with uh, many of the things that are required in order to understand the nature of korbanot. So, as an example, the beginning of the parasha will tell you about the animal, the sacrifices. It will tell you as well about the nature of of the uh, menachot, that someone who couldn't afford an animal, instead they could bring birds, and if they couldn't bring a bird, they couldn't afford that either. So then they were, it was, they were capable of bringing something called a mincha. And the mincha was made of flour with water. They would put oil on it, uh, levona, all sorts of different spices that they would put in order to be able to create something that they could sacrifice and bring as a korban to Hashem. The nature of a korban, the idea of a korban, as we've already described and explained in other classes, is korban comes from the root where you're Bringing yourself close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. One way is that when a person sees the sacrifice that they're bringing, they think to themselves, you know what? That really should have been me. I didn't do the right thing. I'm the, I'm not the right way. I could be better. And you know what? Since this animal or since this bird or since this min- minha is now being brought to God as a special korban, a special sacrifice, I also think to myself that maybe there's something for me to better myself in as well. However... And this is where it gets very interesting. The pasuk gives a little bit of a left turn in chapter two, verse number thirteen, and that is going to be the focus of our learning tonight. The whole korban minchaticha and all of the korbanim, all the korbanot minchaticha of your menachot. It also applies to all the korbanot that you would bring that are not menachot. b'melach timlach. You must put salt upon those korbanot, and do not forget the melach, the salt berit Elokecha, that is the covenant of your God, me'al al kol on all of your korbanot, melach. You must sacrifice melach. Now, a couple of things. Let's kind of go over the pasuk again and see what the Pasuk says, and hopefully together we'll be able to work out what's being taught to us in this remarkable Pasuk. The whole Kor Korba on all of your Korbanot, Ba Tenach, you have to put salt on them. make sure you don't forget to put melach. Birit elokeha, the covenant of God, this covenant of salt. What does this mean? Meal Minchatecha al Kol korbanecha, on all of your Korbanot, Takriv melach. You have to, what does takriv mean? You must sacrifice salt. Now that word is very important in this context. Because as the Malbim points out, earlier it said, Ba melach timach put salt. Now it uses the word takriv melach, which means that you're sacrificing the salt. That's a very strange word. Because what is the sacrifice? The sacrifice is the animal, the sacrifice is the birds, the sacrifice is the minha. Why would I use the word takriv, um, sacrifice, on the melach on the salt? It seems like a complete side point to the sacrifice itself. So we're going to come back to this question in just a minute. Rashi, on the spot, teaches us a magnificent idea. He brings in the name of the Midrash. He takes us all the way back to the beginning of time, when we were sitting around together in Genesis, when we at the beginnings of the world. The Pasuk tells us, Melach Berit, what is this uh, salt, this salty covenant? habrit kiruta lemelach, because a covenant was uh, sealed with salt Misheshek yeme from the six days of creation. She for the waters were promised, the waters were promised, hatachtonim, the lower waters, To be brought on the mizbeach, b'melach. How is it brought on the mizbeach? In two ways. One way is the melach itself is, as we just said, it's sprinkled. It's put on all the korbanot. But the second way is v'nisuch ha'maim be'hag. Also. On uh, Sukkot, we know that there's a, a, a libations of the water, the Nisukhamayim. So the water also goes on the Mizbeach. They pour the water on the Mizbeach on a very special ceremony on the holiday of Sukkot. So the lower waters were promised in the beginning of time. When God split the uh, the upper waters and the lower waters. The word for Shamaim, heavens, is made up of an amalgam of two words. Sham Maim, there are waters. So there are upper waters, the Mayim Elyonim, and there are lower waters, the waters down here on earth. The lower waters complain to Bore Olam. I'm going to quote to you from another source, the Bartenura Alatora. He says, he quotes the words of the Midrash, and they're similar to Nashi, but a little bit different. Shekisha amar hakadosh baruchu. For when the Holy One, blessed be, he said, ركيه, Let there be a firmament, and let it divide between the waters and the waters, the upper and the lower. The lower waters began to complain, they عمروا, and they said, In what way are we different from our friends? To be distant, far away, mikisea Those waters get to be close to you, God, and we, we have to be here down on earth in the flipping Mariana Trench, uh, ten miles beneath the surface of the sea. The as, and when they complained in this way, akadosh God promised them, likarev ba that they would be put on the mizbeach, they would be drawn close through the mizbeach, bemelach, v'nisuch b'chag, through the salt and through the waters, ba b'midrash. Now it's fascinating to think that we know the Beit HaMikdash is the place where heaven and earth are united. That's why all the prayers on earth that we pray, we turn and we face the Beit HaMikdash, because that is the place where physicality ascends to spirituality. It's where all the prayers of all the Jews in the entire world our prayers have to go there to ascend to heavens, which is why when we have a chance to go to pray by the kotel, where we have a direct line literally and figuratively, our prayers feel so strong there. You've all felt it. I'm sure you, you will agree. So, therefore, Hakados Hu says, What waters you felt separated from me in the beginning of time? You complained that you were distant from the Kisea Kabod. God says, You're gonna be brought to the Mizbeah. And you will be mikurav, you will be sanctified, sacrificed, but also brought close unto me once again. So all of this is very beautiful. In fact, we all know that the halakha does not end with the sacrifices in the Beit HaMikdash. For all of us who know that we have salt on the table on Shabbat, sometimes people don't realize when we're dipping our bread in the salt, the reason why we're dipping our bread in the salt is because a Jewish person's table is compared to a Mizbeach. And therefore, just like it says, that on the Mizbeach there should never be a time where there is no salt, so so too now that the Mizbeach has transferred from the Beit HaMikdash to the home of each and every Jew, the salt never leaves the table. In fact, very interesting, there's a big disagreement about this when it comes to a special time of year. So all of you will know that every Shabbat you dip your bread in the salt. Now, there's one time a year when we don't dip our bread in salt, we dip our bread instead in honey. When is that When is that time? That time is from Rosh Hashanah until the time of Shemini Atzeret. Because that period is a joyous period. It's a time when we are close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So we dip our bread in the honey. But what many people are not aware of is that the Ben Chai writes that many people are making a mistake. And he disagrees with the custom actually of the Syrian community. He says, you want to dip your bread in honey? Fada, no problem. But don't you damn not dip your bread in salt. That was a promise that God made. You have no right because you want a sweet new year to break God's promises. Okay? You got to do that. You have to take care of it. Fascinating idea. Okay, Now if that's the case, ladies and gentlemen, we are seeing that there's a presence of salt since time immemorial that was driven by God to reunite with this salt that felt a distance from him. So to speak, the salt said, the lower waters said, "Ah, it's not fair, we can't connect to you. We we, we were cast out, we were second place. Boreh Olam says, you want to be close? You got it. Now do you got it? You have it forever and ever and ever. Brit Olam, it's an eternal covenant. I want to share with you, by the way, something fascinating. There's two other places in the Torah that are called Brit Melach, the covenant of salt. One is when we're talking about the gifts that are given to the Kohanim. It's called Brit Melach. Nothing to do with anything. Also, you know where else we find this idea of Brit Melach? When it comes to the, the Melachim, the kings of King David, also is called in the Navi Birit Melach. In each place, the Mifarashim asks, What does Birit Melach have to do with this? And they all say the same thing: that just as Birit Melach is eternal, it's forever and ever. So too is the covenant between God and the kings of Judah. So too is the covenant between God and the Koanim. So we use not only Brit Melach itself to teach us uh, this concept, but it becomes the, the, the iconoclast. It becomes the example by which we rate whether or not a promise is forever. If it's forever for the kings, I'll never forget you. We say forever and ever God is with King David. What's that called? A covenant of salt. Fascinating. There's something about the eternality of salt that needs and begs for our attention. So Rabbi I want to share with you a little bit about what this, uh, what this means. And specifically what this means to you and I who are not made of salt, except for Lord's wife. Let's take a look. <clears throat> The, the Bechor Shor, who is a commentator, he goes one step deeper, and he explains as, following, as follows. Why is it that Melach, that salt, got this covenant? Melach davar hamitkayim. Salt is something that lasts. So since God knew that salt was something that lasts, he gave us this covenant, this misvaah, that there will always be, eternally, the possibility of kapara for you and for me when we do sins. The same way Brit that Melach exists forever, God said Korbanot exists forever. I remember my sister; she used to do a kindergarten in the Syrian community. And there was this one girl, I'll never forget her name. My sister used to tell us a story. This girl called Caroline. Abus, little kid, four years old, little pint-sized kid. She used to come every day in the most beautiful dresses. Everyone's wearing, you know, jeans and a t-shirt. The little kids are in kindergarten. This kid came every day, dressed to Kill. Wearing pity, bimmy p-p-petit, b mabaref, I'm probably outdated already with the fancy kids' clothes. Yishtabach uh, Hashem Okay, so this kid comes every day dressed like you can't believe it. She walks in one day with this magnificent dress on, and as she's playing, she gets some paint on the dress. My My sister... She stops breathing at that she's like, <gasps> you know, she's looking at this dress thinking that she's now going to have to pay for the dress. They're going to go crazy. It's going to cost her the entire uh, profit that she made the whole week, you know, just to pay for this one dress. Anyway, Caroline sees her that she's getting very nervous. She says to her, don't worry, kapara, this five-year-old kid, don't worry, kapara. My sister looks at this kid, five years old. She was she knows what kapara is, that we all say when something goes wrong that it should be for a kapara instead of us getting punished. She says, do you know what kapara means? And the girl says, yeah, that means that we got our dress dirty. Do you understand? Okay? So here we are, understanding from God that the concept of kapara, God says, I want you to understand. I will always forgive you. There will never be a time... There will never be a place. There will never be a sin. There will never be anything that will cause me to be driven away from you. Magnificent! That is the birit melach says the bechor shor. Sure. But I want to draw this idea even further. And he explains. We know that Hakadosh Baruch Hu, He doesn't need the smell of a you know a beautiful uh, how do you call it salt from uh, you know a, a salty piece of meat. He doesn't need it. He doesn't need from us as well. He doesn't need the, uh, uh, uh the, the korbanot of the menachot. Ah, oh, that looks fantastic. Uh, no, nothing like toasted bread. Delicious, right? There's no, there's no obligation here in his, in God's world for these things. So why is he having all these things and why is it called Reach Nichoach? He says, It's in order to bring us the zehut. That when a person sins and does a Qurban, he's able to feel clean again. And listen to his example. Exactly the example of kapara. He says as follows. He says that when a person sins and he can feel like he's clean, he's got clean clothes on. Listen to the words of the Bechor Shor. He writes, When you have clean clothes, you pay attention to keep your clothes clean. When you have dirty clothes on, Nobody protects dirty clothes. Because the minute your clothing is anyway, it's dirty, what do you say? It's already it's already dirty. Nah, whatever, I'll get more. It's like when you put on that smock to paint, it's already got paint on it. No one's nervous about getting more paint on a smock. Why? Because that's the whole point of it. It's dirty, that's how it is. Rabbi listen to this. Therefore says HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I'm going to give you these korbanot so that you can become clean once again. In the words of Shilomo Amelech, Shilomo Amelech used to say, Bechol Et at all times, Yehu Begadim Levanim, let your clothing be white. Shilomo Amelech did not mean that everyone needs to wear a white shirt like a yeshiva boy. That's not what he meant. He meant that everyone should always see their clothing, their goof. Their soul, their presentation to God, they should see themselves as pristine, as clean in the eyes of the Lord. And if a person sees themselves clean in Hashem's eyes, then when it comes time to make a mistake, they think to themselves, For me, lo yafeh, mabisir, sepasnisht. Okay? Sepasnisht, O Yiddish speakers. Mabisir, O Arabic speakers. This is not for me. I'm better than this. I'm cleaner than this. And the very cleanliness ensures that the person stays on the straight and narrow. But when you think you're a crook, what happens? You act like a crook. You think like a crook. You do like a crook. So therefore, God gave us this unbelievable gift, the gift of korbanot, the gift of eternality, a covenant with us, just like salt is a rock. It could sit there forever and ever and ever. So too, Rabotai, uh, with regards to all of us as well. And he ends with one more message, which is very germane to our time. He says, "And so too do you find with tzedakah. God also doesn't need you to help Sbh or the Sephardic Food Fund. He doesn't need you. Yeah, we had forty-eight hours. Everyone gave money. Hopefully, they raised a million, two million, five million, a hundred million. Hopefully, they have enough money." For every poor family that needs to make Pesach seder. I bless them with the greatest of success, but God doesn't need you. Ki kesef Hashem says. I have all the money in the world. If I want to take care of SPH myself, I'll take care of him. There's a poor guy down your street, can't make the seder? How come God doesn't take care of him? God has limitless funds. You and me, we're a little bit nervous right now. Our, uh, what's it called? It looks like someone took the market and plugged it into 210 instead of 1, 220 instead of 110. It's shorting. It's going like this. The stability of the market is like that big balloon guy in front of the used car salesmanship. That's how the market looks right now. Okay? So you and I should fund the poor? Why doesn't God fund them? And he says as follows. If God wants, He can make them all wealthy, all of us, and us poor, by the way. He doesn't need a single other person. In order that you and me get the merit of being able to help those people in their difficult times. That's why God uh, puts it there. So HaKadosh Baruch gives you a chance And then when you need Hakadosh Barachu to remember you, to pull out the covenant, to bring the Brit Merach, where God says, I remember forever. I don't let these things go by. Then when we need, we have something to draw on in our spiritual bank accounts. Rabbutai, I want to share with you an unbelievable story. There was an elderly woman in Bnei Barak, she's crossing the street. All of a sudden, they hear the loud honking of horns, right? which in Israel they just call Tuesday, and immediately everyone is screaming. People don't really realize what's going on until they realize that this elderly woman who was crossing the street in Bnei Barak had been run over. She's bleeding literally out in the street. People are shrieking. They're getting there with Hatzalah. They're working on the body. They're trying to pump her back in. Pump the life back into her. But Rabotai, even with Ellie Beers, Hashem Hashem should give him long life. Hashem should bring him back to us and help him run United Hatzalah all around the world. They save lives with every minute that they have their, uh, their bikes on the street. Okay? So Rabotai... The bikes get there. They're pumping her chest. Nothing. The poor woman, in the middle of the street, surrounded by bystanders, by bystanders of the uh, of the religious community in B'nai Brak, returns her precious soul to her maker. The police are called. They get there. They're surrounding the body. They start asking, you know, giving orders. Okay, bring her here, get the thing, bring her to the morgue, we're going to do an autopsy. Poor old lady was crossing the street, you know, when she wasn't supposed to be crossing, and she got hit by a car. There's not, nothing really to autopsy here. And the Jewish people, they know that halacha says that a person's not supposed to have it. Now, if there's you know, uh, funky circumstances, and we don't know what's going on, and we're trying to find the murderer, or we're trying to find if someone poisoned their poor Aunt Betsy in order to get the portion of the will, okay, fine. Here, it's an open and shut case. So they start arguing with the police on there. What are you doing? Why do we need an autopsy? Give her the respect. Hazid, her body is already hit by a car, now you have to tear her open, disrespect the body. They realize that the people around, they're right. And they don't want to have a scene in a very religious area. So the police say, look, if you want, no problem. We'll turn her over like this to the Chevra Kadisha, But let's, we got to figure out who she is. The people on the spot, they take, they go through whatever she has. Then they realize that this elderly woman comes from a city in Israel called Chulon. They go through till they find a the phone number. They call her house. There's no answer. They make inquiries of her house and it turns out from the people nearby, she's an elderly woman, she had no family and she lived entirely alone. Hazid, she died and nobody knew the difference. The people in Bnei Brak, they find out, they feel terrible. Somebody's died in their city, on their streets. They've done what they can to give kavod to the body. They don't want to get an autopsy done. But they bring her around and they decide that they're going to announce in the streets that everyone should come to this funeral. Hasmi Shalom, There should not be a funeral to a little old lady even if nobody knows her. They don't even barely know her name. There should not be a person, a Jewish person who's buried alone, who dies and goes from this world to the next alone. The Jewish people... Mafi Mitlom. There's nobody like him. Within minutes, people are streaming in from everywhere. 100 people, 200 people, 500 people, a 1,000 people. There are thousands and thousands of people at a Levaya of a woman that they don't even know her name. Are you proud to be a Jew? Mwah! Packed! They finish the funeral. They do the prayers. They bury her. And everyone starts to leave. There's only a few people there. And all of a sudden you see frantic. There's an older lady making her way as quickly as she can to the grave. One of the rabbis who dealt with the kivura sees an elderly lady running towards the grave. He thinks, ooh, Lee, Shema Yisrael, maybe this is someone from the family. He goes running after her. And before she can get to the grave, he stops her and says, ya mama. He says, Was this someone who was related to you? She said, No. Was it someone, he says, that was very close with you? She says, No. He says, Why do you look so anxious? You're running from the bus I could see to get here. Listen, Rabbotai, to this. Listen to the Berit Melach, to the covenant of salt, how God never forgets. She says, This old woman, she wasn't so religious. But I remember her from back in the Warsaw Ghetto. In the Warsaw Ghetto there were over nearly 500,000 Jews stuffed into a tiny part of the city. And the Nazis closed off the city with gates. And there were so many people living together that typhus broke out and it was dangerous to be on the streets. It was literally a plague. Much worse than coronavirus. You caught typhus, you were dead. So there were bodies on the street of the city of Warsaw Ghetto that nobody would bury because they were afraid to touch the body. They were afraid that they would get sick from the person that died and they themselves would also die. And she says, and this woman, she buried a few of my siblings. And when I found out that she passed away and that there was no one here to be buried, I made the journey, even though I'm not, an old, not a young woman anymore, to show that I remember and that I appreciated what she had done for my family all that time ago. Berit Melech. The God that never forgets, that ensures, that this woman who was unknown, that there should be thousands of people, she should get a burial, like the Sadeket that she was, but that nobody knew that she was. Unbelievable. And this is true, by the way, for you and for me throughout our whole lives. You know that famous line that says, No good deed goes unpunished? Where you do a misvah, and then you find out and people start bothering you about it, and you know, and you just think, you know what, I wish they would know actually what I just got finished doing. Or when someone says, you know. I wish you would do more for the community. I I think you could. You thinking me? I <laughs> I can barely breathe. You know that's what you think. We think who's going to see? It doesn't matter who sees. Boré or Lam sees. Hashem knows when you were kind, and Hashem knows when you were humble, and Hashem knows when you were forgiving, and Hashem knows when you were generous. I sat in my father's shoe one afternoon, one shaharit. Excuse me, behind. A gem of a man. A collector came from Israel. Hazit, I don't mean to put, you know, to dump on him. He had no money. He's worried about his family. I I feel it. I get it. He goes up to one guy sitting in front of me, and every guy in Israel thinks that every guy in every one of our shoes, Ma, zeh James Bond zeh, zeh James Bond, lo, no, zeh James Bond. That's what they say. They think that everybody is a some slick uh, whatever operator. They think that everybody is Bill Gates and that everybody is uh, Jeff Bezos. Why? Because we live in America. The guy comes up to this man in front of me, and I want to tell you, out of our community and deal, he's not a wealthy man. He does not have a lot of money. He doesn't live in the wealthy area. He's kind, sweet, you know, uh, self-effacing to a fault. Unbelievable man. And this guy comes up to him and he says, like this, during the prayer. And the guy reaches in his pocket and he gives him $5, which was a nice donation for him to give, by the way. He doesn't have. The guy looks at the $5. He says, Atalomit Bayesh? Are you not embarrassed of yourself? Are you not humiliated by the fact that you could give me $5? Keep the $5! That's a you have to give me. Anyway, my blood is boiling. I walk into the guy and I just say, Excuse me, excuse me. I said, me excuse me. I'm watching this guy, poor guy. He goes from white to red to white again. The guy walks off. He's sitting there with the $5 that the guy shoved back in his hand. And he's shaking. But he's not shaking from anger like I am. He's shaking from humiliation. To be made to feel poor by a poor man. And I said to this man, I said, as soon as the prayers are over, he said, no, no, it's okay, it's okay. He thought I was going to tell him, I'm going to go sort the guy out. I said, no. I said, as soon as the prayers are over, if you could please... I beg of you to put your two hands on my head and give me a biracha. Rabbi, I should give you a biracha. Why? He says, because I said, I never saw someone get humiliated like you just did and not answer back and not destroy the guy, eviscerate him, make him feel like the piece of garbage that he was. Granted from his own Sarah, But to destroy someone like that in public while he's doing you a favor. You didn't open your mouth. I want your beracha. he said. Your beracha is so powerful. Please, can I have your beracha? And I said to him, if there's something that you want in your family, right now, ask God for it. I can't go into it because if I go into what he asked for, some of you might know who he is. But I will tell you that something that he was waiting for for years, Boreolam answered his prayers that week. Birit melach. You try and come close to me with your actions. Hashem says, I'll never forget it. Never. For eternity, it's going to be there. Not only that, it's going to become the word in the dictionary that the Torah uses to describe eternity. You know that covenant I have with the Kohenim and with the kings? You know what I'm calling it? The Brit Melach. Wow! Rabbutai, but it goes deeper. I asked you earlier that the Malbim, he expresses that the word in the Pasuk is curious. It says, Make sure you put melach salt on the Korban. Got it. With you. Lotashbit melach. Meloch timlach. It tells me twice. Make sure you put the salt on. Don't forget. Twice. Amazing. Shabbat. It tells you twice. Zachor and Shamor. Same thing. Put. Don't forget. Lotashbit. But that's not enough for the Pasuk. The Pasuk comes all the way back and says. Al korban korbanecha takrib melach. Sacrifice salt. And we ask the question. Why would we use the word sacrificing salt? The salt is not a sacrifice. The other thing is a sacrifice. But I need you to hear something remarkable. I'm putting together the words of the Malvin, together with the words of the Tur Ha'aruch. The Tur says, The does timlach." Why does it say, Bamelachtim, lachnat not B'MELACH singular, it says you, singular, you should put salt on, AL because it's referring here, to whom, who puts the salt on the korban? Not the Kohen, the owner of the korban. that was mentioned in the beginning of the perashah, and if you have a mincha which is a thicker one, and what is the reason that it's said this way? It's telling me that the baalim, the ownership of the salt, ready for this, because the salting is kasher bizarre. What does that mean? I know that not everybody here learned Kodashim, Zivachim, Menachot. You might not have learned the Halachot of Korbanot. But who's allowed to bring a Korban on the Mizbech? Only a Kohen. Let's say I'm a very religious Yisrael. Okay? I want to bring my Korban on the mizbeach. Mutar Asur? Asur. Very, very terrible punishment for me to be Makriv, for me to bring a sacrifice in the Beit HaMikdash. I can't There's certain things I could do. As an example, Shechita of the animal, Kasher Bizar, no problem. A foreigner, i.e. a Yisrael, not a Kohen, is allowed to do the Shechita. But to bring the Korban, only the domain of a Kohen.
1: Fascinating.
0: It turns out, says, the Malbim, and according to the tour, what we're adding over here, that this word, Vimelech, Timlach, What it's telling you is that the Be'alim could put the melach, The owner of the Korban, the Yisrael, he could put the salt. And now you understand why this word, Takriv, sacrifice, was brought specifically on the salt so that every single Jew, whether he is Kohen, Levi, Yisrael, whether he is a Sadiq who is bringing a Korban Pesach, or he, was, he is a shot that is bringing a Korban Hatat. Even if he's someone, even if it's a Korban of a woman potentially, who's bringing a Korban of a sota, The worst of Am Yisrael. The owner is able to add the salt. And through that, the owner themselves, Takriv Melach, is capable of bringing the sacrifice, of bringing a Korban, a mechanism of closeness, of reunion between themselves and akadosh baruchu Hu B'Khvodoh Unbelievable. Borei Olam doesn't bear grudges. Borei Olam doesn't say quarantine. Borei Olam says, you want me? I'm here, rohi, let's go, come. Fada. There was a man whose name was Yaakov Haziza. Not Hazita, that means something else. Yaakov Haziza lived in a moshav on the border of Lebanon. El-Banoni. Okay? And he was the only religious person on his whole moshav. I think it was called Or Yaakov. I, I forget. I can double check later if someone wants to know. He's living in this moshav. He's got three partners. The three partners are not religious. He's the only guy who's religious. Together, they chipped in to buy... Some, uh, what's it called? Some uh, machinery. And they took this machinery and they decided that they're going to cut the, what's it called? The crops that they had with this machinery and then they'll return the machinery after three days. Anyway, this religious guy is sitting there. All of a sudden they turn up. What day did they turn up with the machinery? They turn up on Thursday. They have Thursday, Friday, Shabbat. Okay? And then they got to return it. They said to him, "Look, we've already decided who has the machine. I have it on Thursday. He has it on Friday. You have the machine on Shabbat." He says, "Why'd you give me the machine on Shabbat? We're partners. You wanted to rent the machine. You're charging all of us. It's going to cost me a fortune now. I can't. I can't do the. I can't. Uh, you know, harvest my stuff on the day of Shabbat. You know, I'm religious. You know, I keep shemitah. You know, I keep netterevai or la. I keep all the halachot." Why, why are you doing this to me? They said, this is what we've decided. This is how it is. Look, you could choose to do whatever you want, but it's going back on Sunday. Thursday, they get their crops. Friday, they get their crops. Shabbat, they even use the machine because he's not using it. He says, okay, what am I going to do? I'm not working on Shabbat. Had that, he has now all of his crops are standing in the field. They're not cut. He has nothing to do with himself. He's flipping out. But... Shabbat, they're laughing at him. They return the machine on Sunday. Everyone is saying about how it's such a bad year. that None of the crops have grown, right? At least they cut whatever they could get, the small amount that they were able to get. They got, they'll be able to make profit. This guy, he's so religious, look, maybe he should think of his family before he thinks of Shabbat. Over the next three weeks, Rabotai, the drought in Israel that was there at the time all of a sudden decides it's heading off to other places and the rain starts bucketing down and the rain that the plants needed so desperately in order to grow where none of the others, their fruits, their, their, their harvest grew very short. His crops grew tremendously and by the time he harvested his crops three weeks later, he wound up making more money on his crops than all three of his partners put together. Now they came back with their tail between their legs, and they said to him, we're so sorry for making fun of you. It seems clear that Boreolam Olam is on your side. Maybe you could teach us a little bit of the laws of how to respect God with your field, with your farm, with the, your produce. He says, he's got tears in his eyes. He's been waiting all his life for his friends to come around. He says, absolutely. He says, why don't we arrange... Um, in the little bit Midrash that we have in the Kibbutz. Why don't we arrange in the bit Midrash, you guys every night, you gather at the end of the day, you go to the social hall, and you play cards, you play poker, come instead to the bit Midrash, and I'll teach you. One night we'll learn a little bit about Shabbat, about planting, about harvesting. Next, next we'll learn about Shemitah, next week we'll learn about this. Anyway, they all decide, first a couple of his partners, because they saw the guy did better than all of them, against all logic. They all start coming. First it's 5, then it's 10, then it's 20. Soon, all of the men of the yeshuv, instead of being in the social or playing cards, where are they? In the Midrash with Yaakov Haziza. One night, they just finished learning and they hear an incredible explosion. They're on the border and sometimes they shoot across the border missiles. And a missile does a direct hit on the Moshav. They run, everyone is going crazy, running to their houses, trying to find, to see if their family's okay. Everyone's okay. But they can smell the smoke. Something was hit. They run around the Moshav, and then they realize that the social hall where they always would play cards every night, which was now empty, because they were all in the Beit Midrash with Mr. Chaziza, was destroyed beyond any recognition. The entire men of the group would have been wiped out in one shot. Every one of their wives, widows, every one of their children's orphans. One Jew could save not just himself, but he could save his entire village by bringing them. The Kiddushah, the tahara, the beauty of mitzvot, by connecting them once again with God. And I want to ask each and every one of you. Maybe it's your turn to be Yaakov Chaziza for your friends and for your family. Maybe it's my turn. Maybe I got to get them into some Torah classes. Maybe I got to get them to start keeping Shabbat. Maybe I have a chance to do something like this. And Rabotai, bore Olam does not forget. It's a very, very sad thing that I'm about to share with you. In our community, in the Safra Synagogue of Manhattan, we have something that I'm very, very proud of. And it's something that's very, very sad for me to talk about tonight. Because just like in the beginning of this story, we've also had a very unfortunate story happen this week. There was a man who would come to our Beth Knesset. His name was Eliyahu Moshe Weiss. And he would come in with his briefcase. Always with his briefcase. And people did not understand why he always wore his briefcase. And the reason is because Eliyahu Moshe was homeless. He was a homeless gentleman. Lots and lots of people tried very hard to find him a place to stay, to get him a job in our synagogue. Everyone was nice. People took him home on Shabbat for Friday night dinners. People made sure someone in our community put him up in a hotel for a week He came to me to tell me he didn't remember what it felt like to have a warm shower. We have a tzaddik in our community called Avram who was putting him up in an apartment in Brooklyn. He gave him an apartment. But he was a restless man. He didn't want to be. He wanted to be in a place that he wanted to be. He wanted a job that he wanted. But what he needed more than anything else from people was respect. And on the first night, of Hanukkah in a very fancy synagogue called the Safra Synagogue of Manhattan, the first night when you give someone, an honorable person to light the menorah, to represent the community, I'm so proud of our community that the person who lit the candle on the first night of Hanukkah this year was Eliyahu Moshe Weiss. And he was so proud of that. And on Purim, He mentioned it to everybody that would listen. A homeless man, he says, with no money. And all these rich people here. And who does the rabbi, who does the gadai pick? Who gets the honor? Who'd they give it to? Me. Gave it to me. Well, boy, am I happy that our synagogue looked at every Jew the same way. Because this week, Eliyahu Moshe Weiss passed away. But he passed away, having been made to feel like he was one of the gang. In a beautiful synagogue. In a wonderful place. In a place that Edmund Safra, Allah, Shalom would have been so proud of. Because he also used to give... The nobodies, the time of day. He took his fur coat off once and gave it to a homeless person outside the bank. And I called his son the morning after we found out that he passed away, only to find out that the Sadiqim from our community had got together along with the people from Rabben Shemol's community. And they paid the money for his flight to go back and be buried in Eretz Israel. What would we give for one more Shabbat to have you with us, with your briefcase, to honor you with an Aliyah? But I know that Boreh Olam is not going to forget our kindness, and I know that Eliyahu Moshe. He's making trouble already up there. And he's telling Boreolam, you can't do this to these people. That is the power of the Jewish soul and of the Jewish heart. Rabotain. I'd like to end with one thing. One idea. There was a woman whose name was Yaffa. And Yaffa went to a makolet in Israel one Friday, thir- excuse me, Thursday afternoon. She turns up Thursday afternoon and she's shopping for what she needs for Shabbat. Her daughter Hannah is sitting there in the front next to the makolet. She says to herself, "You know what? The kid is having a great time. She's playing in the mud. She's running around with the other kids." She'll be fine, I'll be out before she knows it. Mother goes inside, and after two minutes, she hears a scream. She comes running back out, and she can hear people yelling and pointing. In front of the Makolet in Israel, like they have in some of the old Makolets, there was a well, and the child, her child, the toddler, Hannah, had fallen down the well. She looks down. They hear the baby is splashing in water. People start screaming. The mother's losing her mind. They get volunteers. Volunteers quickly climb down into the well. They pull the kid up and the kid is completely soaked head to toe in water. The kid's been under the water, not breathing. They start pumping the baby's stomach and until the kid starts going, the kid chokes up water and blood. Now that the water's out, the blood's been out, they take the baby, they rush the baby to the hospital, along with the mother, Yafa. Yafa gets to the hospital with her baby, and all she's saying is, save my baby, save my chana, chana, chana. They take the baby and the doctors start working as hard as they can to do everything that they can to save the child's life. But the doctor comes out after a few minutes and they say, look, we know that your daughter woke up, but we don't think she's gonna survive. Don't get your hopes up. And the mother says, there's no way anything is happening to my daughter. Nothing's happening to my Hana. Nothing. My daughter Hana is going to be okay. And the doctor's trying to make her understand. You're not understanding the reality. Listen carefully. Your daughter fell down, swallowed a ton of water. There was no oxygen going to her brain. We don't know if she's going to survive. So you need to be prepared. Who do you need to call? And all the mother will say is, no, no, my daughter's fine. Nothing's happening to my Hana. My daughter is fine. Don't talk like that. The doctors can't get through to her. They call in family members, everyone, and the mother just keeps repeating, my daughter, Hana is going to be fine. There's not going to be any problems with this child. She's going to be fine. They think she's lost her mind. One day goes by, two days go by, three days. And they're not seeing an improvement in the situation. And they start telling her, maybe you need to start thinking a little bit differently. No! My daughter's gonna be fine. Okay. What are they gonna say? They're thinking they're gonna need to hospitalize the mother soon. Rabotai, I need you to hear the end of this story. One day, that week, Yaffa comes running out into the hall, and she says, My daughter's awake! She's awake! She's awake! Everyone is thinking, Ugh, oh, this is the lady that doesn't understand the reality. We're going to listen to her for her. She says, I promise! Come look! She woke up! She's talking! They come running into the room, and her daughter's awake. And it's only a short amount of time before they're wheeling the girl out in a little wheelchair, okay? And the girl is fine. They bring her home, and the family makes a se'udah hoda'a And who turns up to the se'udah hoda'a The doctors from the hospital and the nurses. And they say, we don't understand one thing. All this time, everyone was telling you, even your own family, and you just kept saying, she's fine. How did you know? How did you know she'd be fine? The woman says, I'm a poor woman. I only make a few shekel extra to help support my family. My husband is learning Torah. I do my best for my family, whatever I could do. He learns my husband whenever he can, but we barely make it by. But even though we have almost no money, she says, I volunteer as one of the very few women that volunteers as a balanit, as the woman who takes care of the mikveh for the women. I'm there to make sure that when they dip in the mikveh that they dip kosher. When there's a tahara in the mikveh, I'm the one. I dip the body. And I heard my husband learning a few weeks ago the Gemara in Baba Kama on Daf Amud Aleph, page fifty, where the Gemara says that Reb Ben Akana, a man who dug wells for the Jewish people when they went to Eretz Israel? the one that dug the wells for all the Oleh Galim on the way to the Beit HaMikdash, his own child fell in the well. And when they came to Rav Khanina ben Dosa, Rav Khanina ben Dosa said, the girl's fine. They said, how do you know? Are you a prophet? He said, she's fine. Are you a prophet? I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. She's fine. What happens? Turns out the girl's fine. They said, how did you know? He said, I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. But I have a Kabbalah from my father's house. That when a person does a mitzvah, that thing will never be the cause of something that's going to hurt him. I'm a woman who volunteers in the Mikveh. I thought to myself, it's impossible that my daughter should die in, in a bar, in a pit, in a well. It can't be. My daughter's going to be fine. Her emunah was rock solid. It wasn't a possibility. And while everyone doubted her, she knew that there was a brit nelach, an eternal covenant where God does not forget. And He ensures that every single thing that we do has its just recompense. Rabotai, it is my fervent wish that the holy Nishama of Eliyahu Moshe Weiss, who was treated with great dignity by our communities, should be up in Shamayim pleading the case that if we went above and beyond to try and be there for someone who lived on the streets, that we too, and all of Am Yisrael, and indeed the entire world, should be given the Zichut to once again go out onto the streets. Because we took care of one of their own. And we made that person feel like he was one of us. And please, may he hear our prayers. And may he see our deeds. And may he wear them as a crown. As the Gemara says, that when God sees us doing those things, He says, Yisrael, asher becha et That you were the Jewish people, that in you I find my glory. You are my crown. We have all been that crown. And we can all be that crown. I'm seeing the floods of messages of people who are in their homes and what are they thinking of? Creating and cooking meals for this pantry of Bikur Cholim. Mika Yisrael. Hashem, please. Sheyona letzarotenu dai. We've had enough people who are sick. We've had enough people who are ill. We've had enough people who have died. Hashem <speaking in Hebrew> chalas. Bring us Mashiach. vi v'yamenu. Amen. Shabbat shalom.